Before we get started, if you're interested in the medieval era, you'd probably like the horse's store. There's a sword and some shirts that all take inspiration from medieval design. Check it out at horses.land, and I hope you enjoy this video. Merlin is most famous as the mysterious sorcerer and advisor to King Arthur. Yet in the folklore and historical documents that bear his name, Merlin takes a number of titles. Poet, magician, prophet, shaman, even antichrist. So, was Merlin real? Yes and no. Right now this answer is frustrating. But as we examine Arthurian legends and the historical context that created them, it will become substantive, meaningful, and indeed, true. Immediately, we should acknowledge that Merlin has existed for centuries, and so he appears in thousands of written works. We cannot possibly offer an entirely comprehensive view of these works. Such an effort and the resulting essay would be effectively infinite. Instead, we will examine the works that most significantly developed the figure of Merlin. The first mention of a Merlin comes from a 9th century Celtic epic called the Gododin. In this story, a horde of warriors do battle against the Saxons. In the battle, the Saxons are victorious, and virtually all of the opposing warriors are killed. Within the story, there is mention of one soldier called Myrdin, which is the old Welsh form of Merlin. There is also a vague reference to King Arthur. One warrior is praised but with the specification that he is, quote, not Arthur. With only a little stretch of the imagination, we can see how this could reference the legendary King Arthur. Merlin's entire lore is intertwined with that of Arthur, so this connection is certainly significant. From the same time period, we do find mention of a Merlin in another Welsh poem. Interestingly, this one is called Prophecy of Britain and regularly features the phrase, Merlin foretells as an opening line to its stanzas. Again, this is hardly a concrete link, but the prophecy of Britain does check two boxes, the name Merlin as well as the idea of prophecy. So far, our connections are vague and perhaps circumstantial at best. But then we can look to a collection of poems called the Welsh Triads. These poems have been traced definitively to the 6th century. In the triads we have this passage. Three skillful bards of Arthur's court, Myrdin, son of Morfrin, Myrdin Emrys, and Taliesin. Here we have the first time Merlin is mentioned definitively in connection with Arthur. Perhaps more remarkably, we have two Merlins, Myrdin, son of Morfrin, and Myrdin Emrys. Each of these have likely connections to our now famous Merlin. Elsewhere in Celtic literature, there is a character named Morfrin. He is the son of a woman named Caradwen. Depending on the source, Caradwen is described as a sorceress, a wise woman, or a goddess. Caradwen brews for Morfrin a magical potion that will give him all of the wisdom in the world. Ultimately, Morfrin does not take the potion, but if Myrdin is the son of Morfrin, we then have the first link between Merlin and magic. Likewise, the name Myrdin Emrys has its own magical implications. Nennius was a Welsh monk in the 9th century. This monk wrote about a young man named Emrys with prophetic abilities. 
Most notably, Nennius's story of Emrys would later be, almost verbatim, repurposed in Arthurian legend, with Merlin filling the role of the prophet Emrys. Many of these early writings are a swirl of fact and fiction. They document embellished versions of real events or fictionalized accounts of real people. But we can find distinctly non-fictional references to Merlin as well. The Black Book of Carmarthen is a collection of Welsh poetry dated at the 13th century. However, there are fragments within that book that are considerably older, from about the 6th century. It is likely that over several hundred years, these poems were copied and updated by Welsh monks. This was probably in the interest of depaganizing the material. As the Black Book was translated and retranslated, there arose a game of telephone. Originally, it was written in language that, even in the late medieval period, was so archaic it bordered on unreadable. Over the centuries of copying and recopying, scribes made egregious errors in spelling, grammar, and verbiage. As a result, for a long time, large parts of the book were incoherent and basically nonsensical. Thanks to more modern methods of interpretation, the Black Book has now become quite useful. In the Black Book, we have several poems written by someone named Myrdin. Well, maybe. Author Nikolai Tolstoy notes in The Quest for Merlin that these poems could not have been written by a 6th century bard. He argues that the structure, language, and penmanship indicate that they must have been written much later. More significantly, Nikolai notes, many of these poems are basically prophecies. They tell of events that occurred in the 12th century or later. So, unless this 6th century Myrdin was an actual, legitimate prophet, he could not have written these poems. Despite this, the Black Book is still relevant and useful. You see, beyond the prophetic, much of this work is autobiographic. In one section, we learn a lot about Myrdin. Basically, the narrative goes that Myrdin fought in the Battle of Ardurid, which his side lost, and which drove Myrdin to insanity. The victor of this battle, Rederic, is now hunting Myrdin, who is hiding in an apple tree. More to the point, Myrdin now lives as a madman in the Caledonian forest. In this passage, Myrdin mentions Rederic and Gwendolau. We know both of these people to be actual historical figures. The Battle of Ardurid was likewise a real event. So again, we have Myrdin positioned, or positioning himself, alongside real historical fact. Furthermore, the figure of Myrdin came from somewhere. Later authors credited him with the aforementioned prophecies for some reason. It's likely that in the 6th century, there was a person or a prophet named Myrdin, even if he didn't pen these particular works. Whether Myrdin was real or not, though, we can say for certain that he provided the genesis for our contemporary Merlin. In 1136, Geoffrey of Monmouth published the book History of the Kings of England. The book is ostensibly a history of England from its first settlers, centuries and centuries before Geoffrey put together the writing itself. In its introduction, Geoffrey claims that he is not the book's true author, but that it is a translation of, quote, an ancient book in the British tongue. No such book has ever been found, and historians today largely agree that Geoffrey probably just made that up. It seems his book was assembled primarily from Welsh and Celtic folklore, including the poems of Myrdin. 
However, it's worth noting that Jeffrey did a lot of his own authoring too, and his familiarity with the source material was casual at best. This will become quite apparent later, but for now, we can rest the point. Jeffrey's book was immediately immensely popular. At the time, the book was basically unprecedented. No one knew anything about the history of Britain prior to the birth of Christ. There were stories in the oral tradition, but Jeffrey's work was the first comprehensive written history of Britain. As John Matthews notes in the Book of Merlin, the only vaguely similar work was the Bible, similar only in that it offered action, drama, and excitement through the written word. But History of Kings was specifically about Britain. Its stories were set in places that people knew and had visited. Furthermore, it cemented, dubiously or not, the country's history. It told tales of knights and chivalry, which provided an idyllic version of the country. A glorious sort of past, and perhaps one that could be regained in the future. The book also propped Britain up as a great nation with a long-storied past, rivaled only by that of the Romans. For the ruling class, Geoffrey's book functioned as perfect propaganda. They were rightful heirs to a line of kings steeped in the annals of a truly great civilization. The book was also immensely entertaining for its inclusion of the King Arthur. In fact, most of the book is dedicated to Arthurian tales. And it is indeed in these tales where we find Merlin, or at least the first instance of Merlin as we know him today. Geoffrey's Merlin stories align remarkably well to the Myrden poems. Historians unanimously agree that Myrden did in fact provide the basis for Geoffrey's Merlin. The history of kings gives only a small role to Merlin. Throughout the book, it discusses the history of British kings, before stopping pretty abruptly for a section dedicated to Merlin. In this, there is a tyrant named Vortigern who is attempting to build a great tower. Each night, though, the tower collapses. Vortigern's magical advisors tell him to find a fatherless child and spill his blood on the foundation of the tower. In History of Kings, Merlin is the offspring of a human woman and a demon. So Merlin the child is brought to Vortigern. Merlin tells Vortigern that there are two dragons beneath the foundation of the tower who fight every evening. Their fights shake the ground and cause the tower to collapse. Merlin is proven to be right, and shortly thereafter the character makes grand prophecies about the future of the Saxon and the British races. He predicts the rise of King Arthur, calling him the Boar of Cornwall. Merlin declares that the boar will trample Vortigern and his men beneath its feet. Merlin goes on to describe the apocalypse itself as a fall of deadly rain in a sort of trance-like state. Shortly thereafter, Merlin exits the story quite unceremoniously. So, Merlin's role in the history is significant, but not huge. After all, nowhere in those pages do we find the sword in the stone, Excalibur, or the round table. To reach those, we must look further into future Merlin literature. Despite a few critiques from his contemporaries, Geoffrey's immensely popular history was taken as true, including Merlin and his prophetic ability. At the time, it was believed that God just preordained everything, so it wasn't entirely unbelievable that an individual could just be more in touch with God's plan than other people. Indeed, the figure of Merlin specifically became something of a fan favorite. 
buoyed by the resounding success of his history, Jeffrey got right to work on a follow-up. This book would focus exclusively on the increasingly popular Merlin. Jeffrey titled this work Vita Merlini, and it served as a biography of Merlin's life. In the story, Merlin is named Merlinus. First, we see him as a king, married to a woman named Gwendolyn. Merlin fights in a battle against the King of Scotland, during which three of his brothers die. Driven mad by grief, Merlin disappears to live as a hermit in the Caledonian forest. Eventually, he is convinced to return to the kingdom of a man named Rederk. There, Merlin is again established as an all-knowing prophet. Merlin informs the king that his wife has taken another lover. This is true, but the queen denies it and sets up a test to prove that Merlin is a madman. She sends for a servant boy and demands Merlin predict how the boy would die. Merlin says he will drown. The queen sends the boy away to change clothes and cut his hair as a disguise. When he returns, the queen asks Merlin again. This time Merlin says he will die by falling off a cliff. The queen sends the boy away for a third time and has him dress like a girl. When the boy returns, the queen asks Merlin once more, how will he die? This time Merlin laughs and replies that, whether a boy or girl, he will hang. It is later revealed that Merlin is correct on all three predictions. The boy is hunting and falls from a cliff into a river. His foot gets caught on a tree, and his head is submerged under the water until he dies. After this prophecy, Merlin decides to go back to the woods, and he grants his wife permission to marry another man. Later, she does exactly that, and Merlin is granted a new power, control over wildlife. He appears mounted on a stag, followed by a herd of deer. In a jealous episode, Merlin kills his wife for remarrying. Merlin has his sister construct an observatory in the forest, and he retires again, studying the stars and making further prophecies. There, Merlin is visited by another philosopher named Taliesin. Merlin discusses with Taliesin about the things he's learned in the forest. He then goes through the tale of Vortigern, almost exactly as depicted in Geoffrey's history. Eventually, Merlin lives out his days in the forest as a hermit and prophet, joined by Taliesin, a madman, and his own sister. Throughout the book, Geoffrey expounds on the wilderness and tells the story in quite beautiful writing. All in all, it's very romantically done to the point that discussing Vita Merlini as historical narrative could seem silly. If he had embellished History of Kings, Geoffrey wholeheartedly imagined Vita. But in a strange way, the book is actually more representative of existent historical texts than his previous work. The narrative in Vita matches much more closely with Myrden poems and other sources than the History of Kings. Because of this, much of the material in Vita contradicts that in Geoffrey's history. Today, historians believe Geoffrey discovered new material between the writing of History and Vita. This material was likely the Black Book of Carmarthen that we spoke about earlier. So now Merlin exists as a vaguely historical figure. Geoffrey's history and Vita Merlini expounded on Myrden, but not so far as to change his role entirely. However, the character of Merlin would very quickly find a whole new identity. By the 13th century, Geoffrey's history had opened up an entire world of King Arthur writings. A number of such texts appeared, with an increasing focus on the tale of the Holy Grail and the story's Christian elements. 
One of the writers responsible was named Robert de Boron. He composed a poem called The Grail Story, which detailed the lengthy period between the life of Christ and the coronation of King Arthur. If there was any truth to Geoffrey's tale of King Arthur, de Boron was happy to throw it out entirely. In The Grail Story, de Boron recklessly rewrote history, both national and religious. The poet continued this practice with his next work, titled Merlin. In this book, Merlin moves entirely from his non-fictional origins to a place of complete fantasy. Deborah's Merlin opens quite dramatically. We see demons in hell plotting revenge for Christ's existence and defeat of Satan. The demons decide to impregnate a human woman and use the child to do their bidding as a sort of satanic version of Christ. After a lengthy conversation on the mechanics of this idea, the demons eventually do find and impregnate a human woman. But the woman is a devout Christian and seeks the guidance of the church. A priest saves the woman's soul and the life of the baby. The baby is revealed to be Merlin. Born of hell, Merlin now interestingly becomes a sort of quasi-antichrist. The story tells us that Merlin's powers come from his demonic father, and through this he possesses the devil's art of, quote, knowing things that are past, done, and said. As a counterbalance to Merlin's demonic abilities and to lead him away from satanic work, God grants Merlin the ability to know the future. Deboron was having his cake and eating it too. He wanted to write about Merlin, but had to fit the magician into a quickly depaganizing world. So he emphasized this demonic genesis as if to say it was not Merlin's choice to possess magical powers. Furthermore, the focus on his birth provided Merlin with a strong Christian backstory. In an odd way, being the spawn of hell actually made Merlin more acceptably Christian. At the age of 18 months, Merlin is able to walk and talk. In fact, at this age, he defends his mother in a court of law. At two years old, Merlin works with his mother's priest, named Blaze, to write a book revealing all that the young prophet knows. Merlin offers a number of prophecies to Blaze. He further says that Blaze will eventually be involved in discovering the Holy Grail. So already we have Merlin ascending beyond his role as a prophet. He is something more than human, all-knowing, and blessed individually by both the devil and God himself. The next section of Merlin borrows heavily from Geoffrey's history. It tells the story of Vortigern, who in this version is seeking an astronomer. Vortigern laments that a reliable astronomer is rare, but Merlin eventually appears in his search. At just seven years old, Merlin's knowledge far outshines that of other candidates. He also offers ominous prophecies of Vortigern's death and defeat before instructing Blaze to hide away in the forest. There, Merlin and Blaze can continue recording Merlin's future prophecies. The invading Vortigern dies as prophesied by Merlin. Following this death, Merlin declares to the future kings that he must go live in the forest, away from humans. Shortly thereafter, Merlin uses his magic to construct Stonehenge, which we will discuss more comprehensively later. After performing this miracle, Merlin reveals his demonic and divine origins to Uther Pendragon, future father of King Arthur. With this knowledge, Uther grants Merlin a special place within the kingdom. In this role, Merlin instructs Uther to build the Round Table for 50 men. The idea here is that all men who sit at it may be equal. There will be no head of the table. In another magnification of his powers, Merlin now has command over the ability to shapeshift. 
Uther is the king of England and is in love, or perhaps just lust, with a character named Igraine. This woman, however, is married to the Duke of Cornwall and has little interest in King Uther. Merlin makes a deal with Uther. He says that he will transform Uther into the shape of the Duke so he can sleep with Igraine. In exchange, King Uther must hand over the resulting child to Merlin. Uther accepts. All goes according to plan. A child is conceived, and when born, Uther gives the baby to Merlin. The sorcerer hides the infant in a distant land and even picks the baby's name, Arthur. This is, of course, the same Arthur who will be later crowned king. This is very clearly the story of a rape and possibly of kidnapping. But for our purposes, it does have tremendous implications on Merlin's place in Arthurian lore. To demand and receive the firstborn infant of a king demonstrates the immense power and respect that Merlin received from Uther. Years go by and eventually Uther is in his final days. It is time to choose a new king and here we enter the famous tale of the sword in the stone. Merlin informs Uther that on Christmas Christ will give Uther a sign to let him know who is Jesus' chosen king. With this Merlin departs and informs the king that he won't return until after the selection. This is a great example of de Boron's Christianization of the tale. Certainly a sorcerer could not be allowed to pick a new king of Britain. That individual, of course, could only be chosen by Christ. On Christmas Eve, the barons and clergy all gather to witness the choosing. They all wait through the night until a stone anvil with a sword in it appears at daybreak. On the sword, there is a message. Whoever can pull the sword from the stone is Christ's chosen king. From here, we all know the story. Everyone tries, but the young Arthur eventually succeeds and is crowned king. This is basically where de Boron's poem stops, quite inconclusively. But de Boron's work inspired, essentially, a whole new canon of Arthurian tales and a whole new Merlin. We now arrive at something called the Vulgate Cycle. In literary terms, a cycle is a group of stories bound together by common characters, but not necessarily written by the same individual. It is basically a temporary literary canon. And so the Vulgate Cycle represents just that, a new canon of Arthurian lore. No one knows what person or persons wrote the Vulgate Cycle, but these tales expounded on the mythos of Arthur, the Holy Grail, and Merlin. From their creation in the early 13th century, the Vulgate Cycle became one universal source for the Arthurian legends. Within the Vulgate Cycle, Merlin's powers expand even more. Merlin moves across France to advise another powerful leader on matters of foreign affairs who accepts the prophet's instructions without hesitation. So we have a Merlin who can cross the continent at supernatural speeds and whose word is taken across all of Europe as inarguable and omniscient. After the coronation of Arthur, Merlin aids the kingdom in a few battles. He then has a prophecy, a revelation of his own death at the hands of a young woman. Merlin goes to seek that girl named Viviane, who is said to be related to Diana, the goddess of the woods. Although he is knowingly seeking his own death, Merlin's prophecies are said to be so strong that even he himself cannot avoid fulfilling them. Merlin finds Viviane by a fountain and impresses her by performing great feats of magic. He conjures a castle and a garden. Merlin draws a circle on the ground and from it come knights and ladies who are singing and dancing with each other. As Anne Lawrence Mathers points out in her book, The True History of Merlin the Magician, 
the feats worked by Merlin here are decidedly dark. In medieval magic, conjuring a castle usually required some sort of blood sacrifice. The act of drawing a circle on the ground had likewise demonic implications, and thus Merlin's knights and ladies could have been considered demons or the undead. Regardless, Merlin and Vivian make a pact. He will teach her this magic in exchange for her love. Merlin gives Vivian the gift of prophecy before dictating to her a book of spells and instructions on how to perform magic. Using this magic, Vivian eventually brings about Merlin's death. Strictly speaking, Merlin does not die. Rather, Vivian hides him in a mist where he disappears from Earth and conveniently from Arthurian legend. From this mist, Merlin still has his prophetic powers and even communicates with the world on occasion, but in his physical presence, he is perhaps dead. In the Vulgate Merlin, this is not framed to be cruel, but rather a romantic sort of tragedy. Vivian cannot bear to be apart from Merlin, so she captures him forever. Conversely, Merlin accepts his fate, deciding that he loves her more than himself. The Vulgate Merlin is quite representative of the fictional character we now know. He was something close to a hero, but medieval chroniclers were not through with him, not at all. And in his next revival, Merlin as a character would not exactly be treated so favorably. Up to this point, Merlin has been immensely important in Arthurian legend. He all but crowned King Arthur. He was an international diplomat. Merlin had been gifted directly by God and as such was an omniscient, all-powerful, and heroic being. But by the 14th century, Europeans were becoming less approving of anything magical. The relatively accepted pagan past was now an affront to God and the church itself. Sorcery was witchcraft, and witchcraft was evil. But the character of Merlin had grown to be wildly popular, so it is against this backdrop that we find the legend of Merlin evolving even further. The next cycle of Arthurian legend and Merlin is referred to as the post-Vulgate. In an increasingly Christian world, we see a much diminished role for Merlin. Instead of Arthur's closest advisor, he is relegated to the periphery. In this position, the cycle frames Merlin quite ambiguously. Much of the focus in the post-Vulgate era is on Merlin's downfall. Vivian, renamed to Ninian, finds Merlin's demonic genesis revolting and basically hates the sorcerer. She worries that he will use magic to rape her. She kills him, not out of desire or love, but instead to rid the world of his ways. Ninian uses the magic Merlin taught her to trap him eternally in a tomb or a cave, depending on the version of the work. Throughout the tales of this era, Merlin's fate is regarded as an appropriate punishment for taking the infant Arthur from his mother. But the post-Vulgate has not survived in any one form. The only versions that exist today have been put together from various scraps of different translations. So we can look at the post-Vulgate as a stepping stone into Merlin's next form, one provided by a man named Thomas Mallory. The Death of Arthur is a prose work published by Thomas Mallory in 1485. This is yet another compendium of Arthurian tales. Mallory compiled this volume from a large collection of both French and English sources and rewrote some of the work himself. Today, Mallory's book is often used as the authoritative version for Arthurian lore. Broadly speaking, Mallory diminished Merlin's role in the story. More specifically, he reduced Merlin's marvelous abilities. The death of Arthur sees Merlin as a counselor to Arthur rather than some omniscient, all-powerful being. 
His magical birth by a demon is said in Mallory's tale to be just a rumor. A character named King Lot diminutively calls Merlin a witch and implores his men not to be afraid of a quote, dream reader. This type of disrespect was scarcely imaginable prior to Mallory's presentation of Merlin. Tyler Tichelar discusses the role of Mallory's Merlin in a paper titled Merlin, Giver of Free Will in Mallory's La Morte d'Arthur. Here, Tichelar quite astutely points out that Mallory writes Merlin as an agent of free will rather than a character with influence over the universe. In the death of Arthur, Merlin offers advice and counsel but seems unable to shape reality or affect the fate of Britain as he has in the past. As Mallory's book progresses, Merlin takes an increasingly passive role in the story. Merlin offers advice to main characters, advice that they quite regularly ignore. So really, as Tichelar discusses, Merlin just provides a platform for other characters to exercise their own free will. For example, when Arthur is deciding on a bride, he seeks the counsel of Merlin. Arthur tells the sorcerer he is interested in marrying a woman named Guinevere. Merlin prophecies that she will fall in love with another man, saying, quote, But Merlin warned the king covertly that Guinevere was not wholesome for him to take wife, for he warned him that Lancelot should love her, and she him again. Here, Merlin does not forbid Arthur from marrying Guinevere. He also does not tell Arthur the consequences of this marriage, that the affair between Lancelot and Guinevere will eventually destroy Arthur's kingdom. So he really doesn't influence Arthur in any meaningful way. Accordingly, Arthur does not even consider Merlin's words. Instead, he proceeds to marry Guinevere. In another section, Merlin prophesies that the characters Tristam and Lancelot will eventually fight, but neither will die in the battle. As Tichelar discusses in his paper, this prophecy has no impact whatsoever on the story itself. Indeed, none of the characters who hear the prophecy even react to it. Rather, as Tichelar indicates, the prophecy only serves as a narrative hook to keep the reader interested in later events. Tichelar finds another example of this meaningless prophecy later in the story. Merlin predicts a great battle. But again, this prophecy has no impact on the story. Arthur doesn't even respond to it. Like the previous example, it serves only as narrative foreshadowing. Mallory's Merlin prophecies are just a sneaky way to break the fourth wall to keep the reader interested in the story itself. The only time Merlin has any impact on the story is when he protects or enables King Arthur. Merlin is relegated to being Arthur's plot armor. Almost the opposite of a hero, Mallory also paints Merlin as something of a tragic figure. You may recall Deboron's story of Arthur's conception, Merlin making a deal with Uther, allowing Uther to basically rape a woman and create Arthur. Mallory maintains this story in his work, giving Merlin the role of Arthur's de facto creator. This is one of the few instances where Merlin does express meaningful influence over the story. But even then, Mallory changed Deboron's account, reframing the act as morally reprehensible. In this way, Mallory is not afraid to occasionally categorize Merlin as a villain. After bringing Arthur into existence, Merlin then guides him to his coronation. When Merlin prophecies about Arthur's marriage to Guinevere, Merlin knows it will lead to the downfall of the kingdom. Still, it is Merlin who actually arranges this wedding. Merlin continues to guide Arthur through his life as the king brings Camelot to its peak despite knowing Arthur will eventually destroy that same kingdom. Likewise, Merlin predicts his own death at the hands of Mallory's Lady of the Lake. 
He knows his own romantic and magical adventures will lead to his demise, but is unable to prevent them from happening. As Donald Hoffman writes in his paper, Mallory's Tragic Merlin, the character becomes something Sisyphusian, destined to spend his life pushing the Rock of Camelot and his own existence up a hill, knowing that eventually it will just roll back down. Furthermore, Hoffman notes elements of the Greek Cassandra, a seer who was fated to give true prophecies that no one would ever believe. Throughout Mallory's story, Merlin's prophecies are ignored entirely, which ironically enables them to come true. Ultimately, Mallory's Merlin observes, occasionally manipulates, but rarely does he steer the fate of Britain or Europe in any truly meaningful way. Mallory's decision to reduce Merlin's influence was quite intentional. The English had once viewed magic quite optimistically. Even within Christian context, Merlin made sense. Thanks to Geoffrey, Merlin was an individual blessed by God. He was not really a heretic, but now that was all changing. As the Middle Ages came to a slow close, the Renaissance was beginning to sweep across Europe. With it, this movement brought a great focus on science and natural philosophy. Magic was now becoming less acceptable, and so Merlin needed to change. The great Christian Europe could not possibly be manipulated by magic. No, this was far too close to witchcraft and heresy. And so Mallory made his adjustments to Merlin. Merlin's story, of course, did not end with Mallory's work, but Mallory's influence is imbued upon virtually every Merlin story to come since. It is fair to say that Mallory created the quintessential Merlin. Most versions of Merlin we see today have roots within Mallory's writings. A state of permanent change has always categorized Merlin. So, a new question then arises. All of these disparate stories have been assigned, cast aside, and reassigned quite expeditiously, but they all must add up to something. There has to be some permanent mythic core of Merlin as a character. In his work, The Book of Merlin, John Matthews examines the roles that Merlin has played. Matthews' book is astoundingly thorough, and when it is combined with other contemporary sources, we can gain a great understanding of Merlin as a figure. Shamans and shamanic practice have been found across nearly every ancient culture. The definition of a shaman varies from culture to culture, but they have taken the form of knowledge-bearers, prophets, and seers. A shaman is, generally speaking, an individual who has access to a spiritual world beyond our own. Shamans are typically born with their powers or granted them at birth. Certainly, it is easy to see how Merlin carries all of these qualities. To be more precise, shamans usually predict future events by contact with some spirit guide. In many cultures, this is the core function of a shaman, and indeed it has been stated as Merlin's method as well. Geoffrey of Monmouth's writings say this is precisely how he operates. When asked to make a prophecy, Merlin replies, Such mysteries should only be revealed in times of dire necessity. If I prophesied for entertainment or without purpose, the spirit that instructs me would fall silent and abandon me when I needed it. Shamans have also been keepers of esoteric ancient wisdom. In Geoffrey's Vita Merlini, Merlin has a conversation with a man named Taliesin. In this conversation, the two express near-infinite knowledge. In great detail, they discuss the creation of the earth and how all things came to be and now operate. 
Taliesin tells Merlin about an otherworldly realm and the biology of the seas. This combination, the ability to foretell the future and the keeping of hidden knowledge provides much of the foundation for Merlin as a character, so he could be categorized as a shaman. However, we would be remiss not to mention another adjacent concept to shamanism. Druidism. Druidism could very well be its own essay, so in the interest of just keeping things moving, we have to offer a simplified definition of a druid. For that, we can just say that druids were a priestly class in ancient Celtic cultures. Druids functioned through a sort of pagan nature worship, invoking prophecy, magic, and other shamanic practices. Calling druids Celtic shamans may be a liberal application of the word, but not entirely inaccurate. We know Merlin comes from Celtic lore and himself functions as a shaman, so it is no surprise that scholars have theorized about Merlin being a druid. Merlin's lore offers significant pieces to position him as such. For these, we can look to Nikolai Tolstoy's book, The Quest for Merlin. In the earliest poetic works written by Myrdin, you will recall he is hiding in an apple tree. Specifically, he mentions the apple tree hides him with a, quote, peculiar magic. Within Celtic folklore, apple trees indeed hold a certain magical ability, often associated with a place called the Otherworld, which was a realm outside of our own. Presumably, a druid would have unique access to this world. In another one of these poems, virtually every stanza opens with the line, Oh, little pig. It would seem that Myrdin is himself talking to a pig. Within Celtic folklore, pigs are thought to come from the other world. In early Ireland, pigs were an important sacrificial animal. A seer would kill a pig, and through that process, the animal would become one with the gods. The seer would then chew a piece of the pig's flesh and wrap himself in its skin. Through this, the seer was imbued with the divine connection and knowledge that the pig now held. In this same poem, Myrdin claims to live among forest wolves. In Vita Merlini, a wolf is one of Merlin's closest companions. To early Celts, wolves were essentially divine beings. They were seen as the companions of the gods. Even more compelling is the existence of a Celtic stag god. In Vita, Merlin assembles a herd of deer and rides on the back of a stag. In other stories, Merlin himself transforms into a stag. While Merlin can fit into the role of a shaman, there's actually nothing to concretely indicate that Merlin or Myrdin were ever intended as druids. It's a theory, but not one that is widely accepted. And indeed, today, most people know Merlin as neither shaman nor druid, but instead as a sorcerer. Geoffrey of Monmouth brought Merlin into the zeitgeist during the medieval era, and it is in this era when Merlin was at his cultural peak. Medieval scholars were curious about the mechanics of the world and the universe. The church certainly declared some answers, but there still existed an interest in magic as a solution to the mysteries of the universe. Merlin expresses his wizardry all throughout his career. In Geoffrey's history, the King Aurelius calls upon Merlin to build a monument honoring fallen soldiers. Merlin suggests that a collection of giant magical stones be brought from across the sea and assembled in a circle near a battlefield. When the king's men are unable to move the stones with ropes and pulleys, Merlin uses his magic to float them across the sea. This story serves as Geoffrey's explanation for the existence of Stonehenge. This magical act is soon followed by others which we touched on previously, the magical concoction of the round table, the transfiguration of Uther to bed Igraine and conceive Arthur, 
the famous tale of the magical sword in the stone. There's also the gifting of Excalibur, a magical sword which Merlin supplies to Arthur. This episode appears in Mallory's depiction of Merlin. After Arthur shatters the sword he pulled from the stone, Merlin makes an arrangement with a magical figure known as the Lady of the Lake. The Lady will provide Arthur with an undefeatable sword, one that is the most powerful weapon in the world. But in exchange, he must give the Lady the severed head of one of her rivals. Here, Merlin's wizardry is expressed not only in a magical feat, but through a familiarity with a network of magical beings. Even Merlin's birth falls in line with the role of the magician. In medieval culture, a magician was typically born from non-human parents or conceived in some otherwise supernatural way. The everlasting tale of Merlin's demonic conception fits this mold perfectly. However, as we discussed, Merlin's role as a magician diminished significantly in the late Middle Ages. Under the increasing scrutiny of the church, magic and Christianity coexisted in bizarre and nonsensical ways. Roger Bacon was a famous practicing medieval wizard. He was also a Franciscan monk. Somehow, he avoided indictments of heresy and indeed became quite famous for both his magic and his Christian practice. At virtually the same time, there are accounts of other Franciscan monks being burned at the stake for practicing magic. So, as we can see, medieval Europe had a strange relationship with wizards, but certainly permitted them with seemingly arbitrary discretion. So, Renaissance writings of Merlin portray him as an alchemist rather than a magician outright. Instead of concocting or creating reality, he could unlock the secrets of and manipulate the matter given to us by God. This version of magic was much more palatable as Europe continued to march forward into Christianity. Merlin's status and abilities as a sorcerer fluctuated wildly throughout history, but there is one role which Merlin carried with him permanently, almost unchangingly. Merlin has always been, above all else, a prophet. From the earliest Myrden poems, the character is framed as having visions of the future. Geoffrey's history shows Merlin likewise as principally and primarily a prophet. We have discussed many of Merlin's prophecies in this video, the incident with Vortigern, the ancient poems of Myrden, predictions of the Holy Grail, the vision of his own death, etc., etc. Even in the later medieval texts, when Mallory sought to strip Merlin of his powers, he remained as a legitimate prophet. Characters ignore him, but his prophecies do come true. It is difficult to categorize Merlin's prophet status simply as real or fictional, even if we ignore any individual's belief in the idea of people predicting the future. Myrden's early poems contained prophecies that spoke about our real world. It's unclear whether Myrden himself wrote these, but it's possible that an individual called Myrden existed and was believed to have prophetic abilities. So, in this sense, Myrden may have been a, quote, real prophet. In Geoffrey's History of Kings, many of Merlin's prophecies were made about and then fulfilled by events in the story. This book was taken as historical fact, so it would have signaled Merlin as again a legitimate prophet who lived at some point. In the Arthurian literature, Merlin also made prophecies about events far into the future, beyond the time covered by Arthurian lore. So these prophecies were often accepted as truly foretelling events still to come. Throughout the Middle Ages and later, these prophecies were copied and recopied and updated to suit the needs of any respective scribe or society. 
These updated prophecies were interpreted with such creative license as to predict any number of real-life events. For an example of this, we can look at a book called The Life of Merlin with His Strange Prophecies by Thomas Haywood. In this work, Haywood interprets and significantly changes the Merlin prophecies found in Geoffrey's history. They are essentially altered into pro-British propaganda, and much of the writing was penned by Haywood himself. This model of updating Merlin's prophecies was employed time and time again, to the point where it was eventually parodied by Jonathan Swift, the author now famous for Gulliver's Travels. By the end of the 17th century, Merlin's prophetic credibility was in shambles. It never really recovered, and of course today, even with a renaissance of interest in Arthurian lore, very few people consider Merlin's prophecies to have any legitimacy. In addition to these roles, Merlin almost always presents as a wise old man, a sage sort of figure. He is often a keeper of great knowledge. He can see into the future, sure, but he also understands the present universe in a unique, divine, and even diabolic way. For example, the incident with Vortigern, wherein Merlin alone understands why the tyrant cannot construct his tower. Then there is his knowledge of Vivian, who eventually kills him, or his always correct political advising in Europe. In the earliest Myrden poems, Myrden reaches some great stage of spiritual development and willingly retires from our human realm. Certain later manuscripts decided to keep with this tradition. Notably, one 15th century work has him retire to an island called Enli. There, Merlin lives out his days protecting the 13 treasures. We can look at just a few of these treasures to understand the nature of these items. There is the mantle of Arthur, which made the wearer invisible. Also in Merlin's protection is the cauldron of Dirnwich the Giant, in which only heroes, not cowards, can cook food. Then there is the hamper of Gwendo Garen here, which would multiply any food put into it by a hundred times. So we again have Merlin as a keeper of knowledge, here in the form of treasured items and their uses. Merlin's time as a master alchemist can be folded into this knowledge bearer role as well. As an alchemist, he possesses a unique understanding of the physical matter on Earth. This list, wizard, prophet, wise man, shaman, is not entirely comprehensive. Merlin has also been characterized as a madman or even a romantic. And so to be most comprehensive, all we can say for Merlin is that he is complicated. When we finally arrive at the most crucial question, our answer becomes just that complicated. There are prophetic texts allegedly written by a man named Myrden. Merlin also appeared in writing that detailed real events and real people. In much of Arthurian lore, Merlin goes mad after the Battle of Arfdurid, which was indeed a real event. However, Merlin also appeared alongside fictional characters, even if they were thought to be real in medieval England. For example, King Arthur himself never existed. So, the question of, was Merlin real, becomes quite loaded. I would argue that even in his most fictional forms, Merlin was remarkably real. Not as a flesh-and-blood person, but instead in any given era as a crystallization of culture, sensibilities, and beliefs. Like all great characters in folklore, the fictional Merlin is a direct reflection of the world which created him. Each time he finds a new identity, it too serves as a mirror for the culture in which he existed. The answer to the question, was Merlin real, then bears 
repeating. Yes and no. But now this answer has substance enough to make it true. It is meaningful when put within the context of Arthurian legend and medieval history. Paradoxical though it may be, it is ultimately a good answer.